Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least and a better spot to settle. I'm hey everybody, welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And we're back. It's been a while. We took a little break. But we are back today for a a very important episode, and that is how you're going to see the show going forward. When there is an important event happening in the world, and I happen to know someone or can get in touch with someone who we can learn from their experience, and it can help benefit our community, I'm going to reach out to that person and we're going to have a conversation. So you'll hear us sometimes a couple times a month. Sometimes there'll be a longer break, but you are going to continually get these conversations in your feed. So please do not unsubscribe from that community spread podcast. Leave it up there and then you'll continue to get those uh, updates and notifications when we publish an episode. So this week's episode was inspired as I saw our governor send that letter to President Joe Biden uh, asking that Utah be a place where we can accept refugees from the ending of the war in Afghanistan. When I saw that letter go out, I decided I would publish it on my Facebook page and uh, with a caption that just said, we need fewer armchair generals and more people calling for refugees in our community. And one of the comments which was inevitable to come back was just really xenophobic and racist. And it happened to come from a person who's an Afghan vet. And it said, pathetic and weak. Along with these refugees comes the people that created and feed off war. But let's go ahead and welcome them. Hell, why not pay for them to go to school? Maybe learn how to fly, fly planes. Oh wait, we already did that once. I found this quite disturbing and racist and xenophobic and really problematic. But I also know that this will continue to happen, particularly as these refugees end up in our community. We are going to have those on the right start to demagogue these refugees and make them weapons in a political battle. We're already seeing it happen by the likes of Tucker Carlson and Stephen Miller, and it will get worse and worse and continue to grow. So I was lucky enough to have Amanda King on the podcast. She is a West Point grad. She had three tours that she served in Afghanistan and had many experiences with the Afghan people, people that she said she trusted with her life. So I think it's really important that we learn from her experience, that we learn to humanize those people that are coming from Afghanistan, that they will be an important part of our community and that we are indeed actually lucky to have them here. We know that they will help bring rich culture, that they will help bring a uh, vibrant, dynamic economy. And we know that refugees have a great track record of doing really well in this country. And so we would be lucky to have some of these refugees in our community, but we need to get ahead of some of the terrible rhetoric that is going to be coming as and so that we can better welcome these wonderful people into our community. And as far as my broader thoughts on the war in Afghanistan and the ending of it and the logistics of the withdrawal and how it happened, I only can say that I approach it with humility and with really being able to hold multiple thoughts in my head at one time. I can feel and hold and have empathy and love and care about the women and children on the ground whose lives are going to change dramatically. Women's rights in that country are going to change in a way that they are no longer going to be as free, that many of them will not be able to go to school. Many of them's lives will just be completely different. And that they had hope while we were there and I feel for them. And that is hard and difficult. I can both feel and hold that maybe there were mistakes made in the withdrawal and that it could have been done better. But I can also feel pretty assured that this was a good thing that we needed to leave and we could not continue a forever war. And that if we really want to make a difference for women 
for children. There are better ways to spend American dollars than in war. I firmly believe that. There are proven ways we can help send money that will help educate women in different areas across the world. We could make it so every child in Africa had a mosquito net so that they wouldn't get malaria. We have the ability to do that. We choose not to. We choose to spend our money in war. And I think we can do better. So I can hold those thoughts. I can hold multiple thoughts in my head at one time and just feel conflicted because life sometimes is a conflict. And sometimes there's not always a way out that is painless. And so with that, I hope you are going to get a feel for um, what it's like in Afghanistan as we listen to Amanda King and her experiences with some of the people there. So with that, our conversation with Amanda King. Look how far we all came, we made it to this land to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set us around. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Community Spread. We are so excited to have uh, our friend Amanda King on the show. Amanda, how are you? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great. I mean, we took a little hiatus from Community Spread, but I just have been, I've been feeling inspired to have you on because of uh, all the things that have been happening in Afghanistan and, and the things we've been seeing on the news and I wanted to speak with somebody that has experience in the country and with the people. And I thought, well, I mean, I've got family who has been there and who has done that. And Amanda is my cousin uh, by marriage. She's Jesse's cousin. And so I'm super lucky to have that connection. Um, so Amanda, we're so excited to have you on and learn a little bit about you. Amanda comes from deep roots of a military family. I actually got to go to her dad's military retirement. He was a colonel uh, in the military and it was a big deal. It was in Washington, D.C. and it was so much fun uh, to just see something like that occur and, and that event. So uh, Amanda, tell us a bit about yourself and your uh, career and your family and uh, your life. Oh, well, first, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I think this is like you, you hit it right on the head. Um, I think this is a really important story to tell right now. Um, I think it's very timely and I think it's a message that will reach a lot of people. Um, so I guess a little bit about myself. I grew up as a military brat. My father was career military. He was in for 30 years. Um, so I, I was drug, um, to several different States, uh, and then across the world to Germany, uh, with my sister and my mom and to follow my father, uh, on his career path. So very early on that, that ideology, um, of just, of service, um, and of, of, um, loyalty to your country and really kind of a, a greater purpose was instilled pretty quickly in me right from the beginning, just through my dad's example. So I was accepted to West Point, uh, the military academy at West Point up there in New York. And I, began my freshman I like how she just there. casually dropped that. She was just like, oh, <laughs> I, and I was accepted to West Point. I went to West Point. Uh, for those who don't know, West Point's kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. No, it's, it, was, uh, it was less competitive when I got in there. Um, it, I definitely was very lucky to get in. I think being a service member's kid gives you an advantage, absolutely, to any sort of those military academies. But I was yeah, lucky enough to get in. Um, and I started my freshman year there, June of 2001. So I was going to wow. psychology class on September 11th, 2001. Um, and when the first, the first tower was hit. So immediately the paradigm for all of us shifted. I mean, everyone they shifted that day. Um, but for me, I had signed up thinking that it was just, I was going to emulate the careers that I'd seen before me, um, and sort of these, you know, these smaller missions, um, what people always kind of casually refer to again as like a peacetime army. And that's not what it was. So right, right then and there that day, obviously all of us knew it, the world is changing. Um, everything about, especially that particular career was changing. Um, and we saw a lot of people leave 
the academy. Um, and I think that we saw a lot of people who became more hesitant to um, to attend those sorts of uh, those sorts of institutions as well as um, uh, join the military just because of the increased responsibility as well as you you knew you were guaranteed to deploy pretty much either to to Afghanistan or later on uh, when we what were your feelings, in Iraq. What, what were your feelings personally as you knew that um, the world was changing as you put it and that your responsibilities in that world were going to change? What were your feelings around that? Uh, I think it was really one of those kind of like those moments that are frozen in time. Um, and there's, I think all of us have a few of those. So for me, it really kind of gave me a greater purpose um, because honestly, before that, when I was thinking about the military, it wasn't anything that I was thinking was going to be a career. It was just sort of a, a means to an end. And I just kind of remember thinking like, holy crap, like this is, this is the real deal. Um, and this is where I belong. And this is where I find purpose in life. So tell me what, uh, how did, how did it progress from there? What happened um, as you went to school or after you graduated and uh, continued to serve? So I graduated after I graduated, um, there were kind of limited um, pathways for, for women in the military. Still, it had not fully been integrated yet. So I graduated and commissioned uh, into the military police corps, which at the time was one of, it's not a combat arms, what we call combat arms. So it's not really truly like frontline, um, frontline experience. It's not a frontline branch, um, but it was a way that I saw that I could actually like get into the action essentially um, because we were still limited at that time for where females could go. So I commissioned into the military police corps so I ended up going to Vicenza, uh, Italy, to serve with a military police company while I was there. Uh, and after my first initial assignment there, I was able to move over to the 173rd Airborne Brigade Combat Team, which is an infantry brigade. Um, and I, again, just due to, to the restrictions on where females could, could be at at that time, I was up at brigade headquarters um, and served a deployment in Afghanistan with that unit and then went on to serve two subsequent deployments after that for a total of three, uh, all in Afghanistan, um, two as a military police officer and then one um, as part of um, part of a program where they attached females to special operations units um, because at the time there weren't females with, uh, with special ops. So that was my last deployment. Um, which was very unique and just an absolutely like incredible life-changing experience. Um, to this day, my best friends are the girls that I served with over there. The program I was a part of um, was very, very specific for Afghanistan um, to reach the demographics, like to reach the female demographics because of the cultural boundaries over oh. there. Men can't talk to the women. Um, it's, it caused more problems than it solved. Um, to have ma male soldiers talking to the women. So by no means were we like, like I was not special ops. I was just attached to them. Um, so very, like very specific program for, um, for that theater. And they had a lot of success with it. Uh, but this was all before females were fully integrated. Uh, it sounds like you had a lot of uh, personal interaction with the Afghan people and uh, so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about them and um, and maybe as you do that, a little bit about what your mission is uh, as you're trying to uh, accomplish that there. Uh, absolutely. So each deployment was really different. Um, the first two, de two deployments that I went on, um, I worked with the Afghan National Security Forces, and there are several different branches. So I really won't really bore people with like the specifics and the, you know, the all the the alphabet soup um, of the military or of their military. Um, but I worked hand in hand, particularly on my second deployment with the security forces over there. Um, I served as an operations advisor to an Afghan lieutenant colonel for um, the Afghan police uh, up in Masri Sharif, which is a city up north. So our compound was actually, it was a, a small U.S. compound that was, inside a larger Afghan compound. So we were out with our Afghan partners every day, um, interacting with them. And then, so we were there in like a mentorship role. Um, 
and I, I again, so I probably didn't cover this. I apologize. I, I deployed later on in the conflict. Um, my first deployment was in 2009. So we'd been in the country for eight years at that point in time. Um, so we progressed to the point that we were really mentoring the Afghan security forces. Um, and it, everyone had very different experiences in the country, depending on when you were there. But we were at the point where we were mentoring them and running missions alongside them um, and really kind of having them move into the, the planning role and the front seat as far as deciding you know what where they wanted to uh, where they wanted to patrol where the greatest threat was etc um so especially on that second deployment we were really you know other than fridays which is their holy day we saw our afghan counterparts every day um, and it was a very interesting dynamic because there's some cultural boundaries there uh, so i even asked uh, my the lieutenant colonel that i was mentoring, um, despite the fact that I was a 28 year old <laughs> kid essentially. And he's, uh, you know, at that point in time, 40, you know, late forties, early fifties gentleman who had fought the Russians in the mountains. Like, I'm like, what am I going to teach him? You know? Wow. Um, so he, I'm sorry, my dog is all bothering me right now. Sorry, Stevie, get out of here. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, so just, um, I'm sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. Uh, so I think, uh, just talking about like the, the dynamics with him were very different. Um, and I actually asked him one day, I was like, well, you know, the, the women over here are more subservient and they kind of stay at home and everything. I'm like, you know, why, why are we having this kind of like peer mentorship kind of relationship he's like oh well you know women uh american women he's like you're you're like a third gender like you're not even a, <laughs> not even like you're not really a man you're not really a woman you're something in between <laughs> super super interesting tell me what what kind of relationships did you have like with with these with these people, you, you, there's some cultural differences there, but you're with them every day, and you're having these experiences with them in probably some of which cases are intense situations. Um, what what is your what is your relationship become with them? Um, we worked alongside them very closely, and we're there for um, for an entire year. So, I mean, I'm spending more time talking to these people than I am able to spend talking to my family who's 8,000 miles away. Um, and it moved beyond just, I think all of us or most of us who were over there. Um, I mean, we became friends with these people. Uh, we also couldn't have done anything that we did over there without our interpreters. Um, so I had two, two interpreters that I worked with particularly on that deployment. Um, and I mean, they, those guys were our, our cultural experts. They were our advisors. Um, they made everything possible by being able to to talk to our counterparts um, and being able to communicate with them for for the mentorship, for the planning, for missions, all of that. Um, and then we really we had to build trust with those Afghan partners because they're the ones who know the land. We're you know we're visitors. Um, we're there for a very finite amount of time. And you had to figure out really quickly if you can trust them or not. And I, I lucked out. I mean, my counterpart, I, I trusted him with my life. My interpreter, I trusted with my life. Wow. Um, those guys are, are a hundred percent. Like we, we just rely on them. So, they're, I mean, they're essentially your, your teammates in this yes. war against the Taliban. And, um, Tell me a little bit more about this, this, this third mission as you were uh, interacting with the women and children. What was your experience with, with uh, getting to know them and, and that culture? Um, so I did, that was a little different. Um, those missions were, um, were more, um, I guess, like direct action type missions. So we weren't necessarily there to like build relationships. Um, on, on my first and second deployment though, um, just while we were out in the villages and everything, we were able to to stop and talk to some of the women and children there. Um, and even though the women 
I guess the the American mindset and impression of the women over there and my I mean this goes for me as well absolutely at the beginning I thought they were very subservient and that they just kind of stayed at home and didn't do anything but the women run the homes over there um they are it's a different dynamic than what we see here um but they're still an integral part of the community um they're still an integral part of that society and they they run the homes so it's a, they're still a more, badasses in their own, oh, in their own right. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, I mean, those women are first off, they're strong as hell. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're carrying water from wells two miles away to, wow. to sustain the home. So it's really like the men out there are the ones who are doing the more traditional, like, like earning money and doing um, like having careers, et cetera. And the women over there, are really like, if, if they're not at home, like nobody's getting fed, nobody's getting water, you know, they're not going to have a house to come home to. So they're, yeah, they're absolutely badass in their own way. And they're like, I remember one conversation I had with a girl who was probably 16, 15, 16. Um, and I was just talking to her about like, kind of how things are in America. And I was talking to her, I was like, well, what about you? Like, do you have, you know, are you married? Um, do you want to get married? And she's like, I do want to get married. She's like, but I don't want to get married like for money. She's like, I want to get married for love. So all those, all those same feelings, all those same, like, I guess, dreams and everything that we have here, they, the women and children have over there as well. Um, or the people in general over there have as well. It's not this like kind of, I guess the, the, um, kind of stereotypes that we have about that society don't always hold true. Um, they still have those same range of emotions that we have. Well, yeah, I think that's why I wanted to, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because for me and for probably 99% of the people who are going to listen to this show, uh, the people in Afghanistan, the people we've seen uh, in the footage are, they're very abstract to us. And it's hard for us to really understand um, what that suffering is like or what that uh, experience is like. And for you to sit here and talk to us about how, um, you know, they're just there and they're serving their families and they're loving their families and they have the same range of human emotion and work and the same, uh, you know, that they are human beings like, like you and me uh, is, is, it brings it home, uh, at least for me. Tell me how you, you know, you had built these relationships with your interpreters that you said you trusted with your life. How were you feeling at the time when you, uh, started seeing the Taliban, um, take over the country, uh, during, during that time? Um, so the last, the last week and a half for a lot of us has just been a roller coaster of emotions. Um, so I'm sorry, my voice is kind of messed up because it's been a roller coaster of emotions. Um, but I think, um, so for me, one of my interpreters is here in America already. Uh, one of them, uh, he's still in Afghanistan right now. Um, he has a, um, approved or sorry, a pending, um, a pending visa, but it just, with everything, it takes time. It's been pending for like two years. Um, but for me, um, I kind of, we all kind of knew what was going to happen, um, when the U S withdrew and left that power vacuum. Um, I think a lot of us, I mean, I personally was shocked by how, how quickly it happened. Um, and, the morning that we got the news that Kabul fell, uh, I, that's really when it hit home for me. And I didn't think it was going to hit that hard, I guess, but I was sitting with my boyfriend. Um, and I just started crying because I knew what that meant. Um, I knew that that's kind of the last safe haven, um, that anybody had. And when that city fell, um, my first thought was, was just, the impending humanitarian disaster that was getting ready to happen. And immediately I thought about my interpreter um, and whether he was safe. I, I needed to know where he was. Um, I didn't know if he had moved, like I didn't know where in the country he had moved to um, at the time. 
I didn't know his status and just immediately like that kind of became my sole focus was if he's still alive, what can I do to, to get him here? And I think that is across the board, the same thought that a lot of U S service members had. Um, So over the last week and a half, I've talked to people who I haven't talked to in years since I've been out of the military. um, And every single one of us kind of came together and united with this very singular mission right now of what are we going to do not only about the American citizens who are still on the ground, um, but about the people who were, who are our friends and who we serve side by side with um, for the last 20 years. So yeah, that's really heavy. I I can't imagine the, the emotion that, that probably that came with that knowing that your friends are, are in trouble there. Tell me exactly, tell me what, what does that mean exactly? What kind of um, danger are they in? And um, as you're, you know, just, just so that we kind of know and understand what, what it's like there on the ground for someone who uh, fought against the Taliban that is now taking over the government. So everything over there is uh, the, the way I explain it to everyone is it's, people want to think in terms of black and white, everything over there is shades of gray. Um, it's, it's very difficult to tell who the, the good guys are, who the bad guys are. Um, and our concept of like good and bad doesn't really hold true over there. So there are people within, you know, the Taliban and now that ISIS has a presence there in in uh, Afghanistan and not, not necess- necessarily all the members of the Taliban are of this mindset, I'm sure, because they're, they're just human beings like us. They have a spectrum of, of, uh, of emotions and a spectrum of like whether, how ideologically tied they are to that organization. Um, but there are certainly people within, um, within the Taliban who want to take retribution out against the people who were helping the Americans. So anyone who has helped us over the last 20 years, so interpreters, members of the Afghan security forces of the Afghan army, um, anyone, women's rights activists, people who advocated for education, um, people who advocated for a more, um, a more like Western thought process are, are absolutely in danger. Um, And it's because, a lot of those people don't want to give up the way of life that they have, have fought for. Um, and they've been fighting for it as much as we have been um, more. So, I mean, they've, they've bore the brunt of this, uh, this conflict certainly um, over the U S. Um, so they are, they are absolutely targeted um, and their, their lives are in danger and they're, we, they're left essentially without protection right now. Um, because there's no, if they are, if they're targeted now, there's not any sort of um, consequences from the U.S. anymore. Um, so they were, I mean, they were targeted while we were there. The Taliban would try to to uh, intentionally target and intentionally kill um, anyone who went against their their belief system, anybody who was sympathizers or anyone who worked with the U.S. Um, because the, those who are really truly ideologically tied to the Taliban, um, are completely opposed to any sort of Western thought process, um, any sort of Western beliefs. So, so these, these people are absolutely, their lives are in danger, um, right now as we speak. And, and there are, um, the acts of violence there are, there is actively right now, people are being assassinated in their homes, um, because of their, their beliefs and because of what they fought for for the last 20 years. Wow. I, I can't imagine, you know, you talked about um, people advocating for more of a Western society, education, women's rights, and, and people that, you know, I think about myself and our producer, Dan, and the things we care about and the things we fight passionately about, but our, our lives are never on the line. Um, and we never have to make those sort of choices and those decisions about, you know, we can, we can, we're, we're, we can be keyboard warriors. We can show up at meetings. We can do all these things, but like, it's never, 
um, on that kind of level. Um, and these are people that fought passionately and cared deeply. And, and now their, um, their, their lives are on the line for their, their passions. Tell me, I, I know like when Kabul fell, uh, there was a lot of rhetoric going around, uh, even from the president that was, you know, these, the, the Afghan military just, they just gave up and they, uh, you know, kind of a lot of passing of the blame of the chaotic nature of the withdrawal onto the Afghan military. How, you know, having been alongside those people, uh, what were your thoughts on that? So I think that anytime that there's a, a large scale um, crisis like this, people always try to find like a single point of failure. But with everything, I mean, this is a, a multifaceted problem. Um, so the entire time that we were in Afghanistan, and I just I have to preface this with like, I'm not, I don't have an intelligence background. Um, I'm not like an intel analyst or anything like that. So this is just kind of based off of my experience. Uh, based off of what I understood on the ground over there. So the entire 20 years that we were there, while we had a government that was in place in Afghanistan that we were working with, there was a shadow government um, that the Taliban ran. So they never went away. So for every provincial governor who was officially um, working with the U.S., there was a shadow governor from the Taliban. There were shadow mayors. There were shadow district leaders. Um, there was, you know, a shadow Taliban president who wasn't actually he wasn't maybe necessarily in Afghanistan, but this government still existed the entire time. Um, so as we left, it left this power vacuum and whoever, it, this organization already existed. So they were easily able to just step into it because it was already there. So they were easily able to step into the forefront. Um, and again, this is just kind of personal opinion. There's a lot of people who are much smarter than I am who could explain it better. Um, but at that point in time, I mean, it comes down to your life. So are you going to initially go along with the strongest power? Um, or are you going to try to mount a resistance um, just, you know, as hastily as you can? Um, and not, not everyone gave up. There's video, uh, video circulating on the mainstream media right now. Um, you can find it on social media, mainstream media of a border policeman, I believe it was, um, who was being told by his commander to hand over his weapon. And he's in tears. He's crying. He says, you know, anything, like, just don't make me give up my weapon. So they're not, they're not just bowing down um, immediately. It's, it becomes a self-preservation thing at that point in time. Right. Um, and right. I mean, there's, there's active resistances that are being mounted right now. Um, again, this is all like you can find this all in mainstream media. The the Northern Alliance, um, Mossad's son, has come in from France to try to reconstitute the Northern Alliance in Panjshir to try to mount a resistance against the Taliban. Um, so that will to fight is there, but with anything, you know, this takes time. Um, things right. take time. So it, is it going to do anybody any any good if if all the people who want to oppose the Taliban are dead? Um, or is it going to be better for them to go into self-preservation mode and then kind of try to mount an organized resistance um, against this entity that that never went away? Yeah, I I think you know uh, it, it's one of those things where I, I heard Dan Rhodes, who was uh, in the National Security and the Obama administration, on, on a podcast. He talked about how um, you know. The other thing was, is that like anybody with a internet connection was hearing the sort of rhetoric that like, it was only a matter of time before the Taliban was going to take over the country. And so like, if you're there, the security forces on the ground and you know what's inevitably going to happen, self-preservation mode would kick in. Like, let's put ourselves in these people's shoes, right? Like you can fight, but fight for what? Like everyone, like everyone was saying, ultimately the Taliban is going to take over this country. And so I'm sure they were like, okay, if this is going to happen, I'm not like, I, I wouldn't be uh, willing to put my life on the line. And also they have families that live in the country and the kind of retribution that can be taken upon them and their families. And, and, you know, I think if, if we all took a second and tried to put ourselves in that kind of situation where the, the end was sort of futile and everybody sort of knew it, that the, the, the speed at which it fell 
um, although it surprised, it seemed like everyone, um, it, it was, it, it was inevitable that it would take place. Yeah. And I oh, think that Dan is telling me it's Ben Rhodes and he's hundred percent right. <laughs> ben Rhodes yeah. was the, the national security advisor to, uh, to president Obama. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that is true. I think that it just, it's easy to armchair quarterback things from the U S and when, when this all went down, I mean, I, I certainly thought that for a second, I'm like, they just gave up as I'm driving through a drive-through to get my Starbucks coffee. You know, it's very easy to, to armchair quarterback any of this, but we're not on the ground. Like we don't, we don't live that. Even those, uh, those of us who have deployed over there, we were there temporarily. That's, that's not our life. You know, that's a year of our life. That's 18 months of our life. And then we come back to the U S where we have internet constantly and we're not having to go into the town square to charge our cell phones. Um, it's just a completely different, um, a completely different society over there. So it's, it, I, I certainly fell into that myself a couple of times, um, wanting to just initially think like the, the Afghan security forces and the Afghan army just gave up, but it's, it's a lot more complex than that. So one of the things I'm worried about is, uh, as some of these refugees make their way to our communities, is we know that there is a uh, tendency on the right to demonize uh, refugees as, as they come into our country. We've started hearing sort of this rhetoric already coming from the likes of people like Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Um, I, I just want to hear from you a little bit about uh, what it would be like for us uh, to, to be lucky enough to have uh, people that like you met in in our community and living as our neighbor? So I think that humans have a tendency to, to fear what we don't understand. Um, and I think that we, we categorize things to make our lives easier. It's just, it, it comes down to, you know, like evolution and I guess depending on what you believe, but it's an evolutionary response to just kind of like have that self-preservation. Um, and I think that there are people who play off of that absolutely in the mainstream media who want to try to like stoke that fear. Um, but that being said, most of the individuals who are going to be coming to the U S um, the people that we're evacuating right now, there, a lot of them are American citizens. Um, they're, they're maybe ethnically, you know, Pashu or Tajik or Hazara, um, you know, the, the tribes that were there in Afghanistan, but they are American citizens. Um, they've been vetted. They've gone through the immigration process. Um, there's a lot of people who are visa applicants and um, people who have approved visas uh, who, again, were, were vetted once to work with American forces and then vetted again to be approved for those visas. And, I mean, it takes, like, for for my interpreters, it took one of them five years to actually get his approved. And then the other one, he's been in the process for two years now, still not approved. So they've been vetted. Um, these aren't like spies, deep, deep cover spies who are sneaking over here. Um, and then the individuals who are refugees, uh, there's a large amount of refugees who are going to be coming out of this, uh, out of this conflict. They're not all coming to the United States. There are several third, uh, you know, European nations, um, and then nations in the Middle East who are going to take some of these refugees on. But again, these, these people aren't, um, they're just escaping war. Uh, they're not, I guess my personal opinion too is if we save all these lives and accidentally like we let one person in who may have not the best of intentions, um, we still saved thousands of lives. Um, and the refugees that are coming over here are primarily people who are targeted. Um, there's such limited space on, on uh, our airplanes right now that it's not just like a mass run to the gates. It's, um, you know, people who are activists, people who are actively being targeted by the Taliban who just aren't necessarily haven't been approved for like visa status uh, or anything like that. So they're, they're people who were sympathetic towards us um, and who have worked with us, uh, worked with non-governmental organizations, worked with the press, 
um, people who are, uh, if you look on like uh, the State Department, it's like P1, P2 refugee status. So people whose lives are in danger because they were actively opposing the Taliban. Um, so they're not not coming here to attack us. Um, these are people who who have spent the last you know 20 years of their life trying to better their country, but because their lives are in danger, um, you know we we've got to get them over here um, to protect them. And then I mean, eventually, hopefully depending on how things pan out over there, maybe they can go back and, and help to continue to improve the conditions in that country. Yeah. And I, and I know historically refugees have a great track record in our country. They're people who are hardworking and who have worked their, their worked so hard to uh, get uh, to flee violence or to flee war or to get to where to get to this country that they um they, they are doctors and scientists yeah. and they are people that bring culture to our community that uh and so really we would be lucky in my opinion we'd be super lucky to have some of these people in our community and we should uh welcome them and um be be neighborly and uh you know and just I, I look, I hope that we, uh, we, we get neighbors, uh, that, that are from, uh, some of the people that, that you got to know and, and had those experiences and were trusted your life with. Absolutely. I mean, they're extremely hardworking. And if you look at the history of, I mean, I guess the, the modern U S the first people who came over from Europe were, were refugees. They were escaping religious persecution. Um, there's really not a, a difference between, the Europeans who started looking for another place to, to live where they could, you know, live, live in freedom, um, and, and live their lives from, you know, the, the 16, 1700s, uh, up until today, these people are really doing the same thing. Um, and they're absolutely hardworking people. Um, I think that there's, they have a very Eastern thought. They have a very, or very Eastern kind of like sense of the world, um, where they're, very community oriented. They're very family oriented. They think of like the collective good um, rather than the individual good. Um, I don't think that's in any way, shape or thing, a bad thing. I mean, they're going to come here and they're going to look for ways that they can help their families. Um, and, and they're going to look for ways that they can help their communities because that's just, that's the culture over there is they're very decentralized. They're very community focused. They're very village focused. Um, so it's, like having these people over here is a huge asset and they're an incredibly, Definitely. obviously incredibly resilient human beings to, to have undergone um, and to have survived the conditions of that country um, that, that they've lived in. Well, I, I want to ask you uh, what we can do uh, to help. Uh, but before we do that, have, have you had conversations with your interpreter that's still on the ground in Afghanistan? Um, I have, so I, I'll like very specifically not name him. I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics um, because we're actively trying to, to get these people out of the country. Um, I mean, I've talked to him on the phone two or three, three or, sorry, two or three times a day. Um, and all, a lot of us have been doing this. I've heard oh. the same story over and over again. Um, so by no means, like I'm not trying to make myself sound special. I mean, right. this is collectively what, um, what a lot of people who were involved in this conflict are doing right now um, and just looking for every avenue. So huh? a lot of the conversations that I've had with him are just like, like, just, just trust, trust me and trust that I'm trying, like we're all collectively wow. trying to, to do the best we can for you. And um, overall, again, from conversations that I've had with, with friends and with former colleagues about our interactions with our, our former allies and um, with our friends and, and our interpreters over there is they're, they're thanking us right now. And it's, it's almost more painful to hear that because I feel like we're just not doing enough um, to get them out right now. Yeah. And, and how are his spirits? Oh, very high. Um, I think that there's still a lot of hope there. Um, a lot of hope amongst the people who are, who are left in, in Afghanistan right now um, for him in particular. 
um, he, he still, anything that I've asked him, any long shot that I've asked him to take in the last four days, he's been willing to take and, and he's taking the lives of his family and himself into danger to try to do anything he can to get them out of the country. Um, and just, just placing a lot of trust in those of us back here stateside um, and those of us who are and, and those military members who are there on the ground. Um, it's incredibly dangerous for them to move to the airport as, as we saw today. It's a huge target. Um, you know, we lost at this point in time, it's, it's 13, 13 U.S. military members that were killed. Um, and we don't even have an accurate count right now on the number of Afghans that were killed. Like the security situation is just abysmal right now. They're having to move through Taliban checkpoints. People are being beat. People are being kidnapped. Um, people are being held for ransom right now, um, trying to to get to the airport. But he's still willing to make that push um, every time that I've talked to him and every opportunity that I've passed along to him. He's still willing to, to take right now. I mean, it's just, I, I don't really have words for how, um, incredibly strong these people are to undertake that because I think about myself and I think about your average American. I mean, what, what would we be willing to do if we were in that same situation? Um, so it's just that his resiliency, his family's resiliency, um, their strength and their bravery is just incredible. Definitely. And how are your spirits as you are <laughs> trying to help in this situation, as you watch the end of a, uh, a 20 year war and a uh, missions that you took part in, uh, how, how are your spirits and, and how are you feeling and how are your, some of your uh, fellow uh, soldiers that are, you're having these group texts and group chains with, how are they feeling? Um, I think we've all ran just the absolute gamut of emotions over the, the last few days, um, this morning was, I mean, nothing compared to what the people on the ground went through because I can't even imagine, you know, the, just the absolute devastation that occurred at the airport this morning. Um, but I think all of us have got to the point where we wonder, you know, is it, is what we're doing? Does it matter? Can we go on? Um, and it's, you know, the, the five stages of grieving all at once, um, I've felt simultaneously angry and sad um, and just numb all at the same time. And I, it's just rapid cycles of emotion. But I think we've all been really heavily leaning on each other right now um, to just kind of anytime somebody gets a little bit um, a little weaker or has any of those thoughts, um, there's always somebody else who's just like, hey, we've this isn't over. Um, no matter what happens, you know, at, at the deadline, um, no matter what happens, if we extend, if we don't extend, it's not over. Uh, we'll, we'll find another way. Um, and the only way that we can do that is by making sure that, that we are, that we believe, um, that we can get those people out and that, um, that the individuals who are left on the ground also understand that there's, there's still hope. Um, so I really think that, yeah, it's, it's, it depends on the time of day, I guess, when you ask me how I'm doing. Um, unfortunately, yeah. my, my family and some of my close friends and especially my boyfriend, um, I think they're, they've kind of, they've seen it from the outside. So they probably have a better, a better grasp of, of how we're all doing than, than we do ourselves. For sure. Um, you know, definitely uh, it's, it's a, it's a topic that I, uh, approach with just the utmost humility because it's, it's, it's so complicated and so difficult. And, and I'm, I'm honored that you would come on and, and chat with us about it. And, um, I really appreciate your time and your insight and helping us feel, uh, and, and sympathize and empathize and humanize, uh, the people that are there. I think showing support, um, for, um, even, uh, our, our governor, uh, as he's called for refugees, um, to be placed here in Utah. Uh, and when, so when, when the positive things like that are happening, I think that's important to show, um, support for, um, and yeah, it just, uh, any, anything that, that we can do, uh, in this situation is, you know, it's, it's just tough. 
Absolutely. And there's, there are organizations in Salt Lake and throughout the state that work on um, refugee resettlement. Um, so I know there's one, um, the uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic Community Services, um, and then the International Refuge, or sorry, International Rescue um, Committee that are in Salt Lake. So these are organizations that are going to be working on, on finding homes for these refugees. Um, so they, they need I money. Mean, yeah, they Don't, need money. Donate. <laughs> Yeah, they need money. They, these people are escaping from the country with with the clothes they have on their backs, because when it's their time to leave, it's their time to leave, and they can't take anything with them. They left everything behind. So these organizations need money. They need donations. They need you know children's clothing, adult clothing. They need food, all of that. So so absolutely, there are things that you can do on on the tail end of this as well. Once we actually get people, that's awesome. My neighbors. <laughs> my neighbor's truck just went off. <laughs> so there are absolutely things you can do on the tail end um, to help these people integrate into society when they get here um, and to help them kind of, they've, they've lost everything um, and to help them get back um, a, a little bit of what they lost. Um, but it, yeah, it's, I can't imagine what they're going through. Well, we'll put the, uh, the names of those organizations you mentioned in the show notes and uh, so people can look those up and, and donate if they, if they can. Uh, Amanda is also a, a paramedic here in Ogden, so uh, she may save your life someday. So um, make sure you wave to her on the truck. She runs up 22nd Street <laughs> past our house all the time, which we love because we get to see her. So um, yeah. thank you for all of that work too, Amanda, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Have a yeah. good night. You too. I'm in the search for peace at least. That's it for the show today. I want to thank Amanda King again for coming on the show and sharing with us some of those really difficult experiences. I also, as always, want to thank Decker Yazi for our artwork, as well as August the Great for our theme music. Please smash that subscribe button so that you can uh, continue to get these shows in your feed. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez.